everybody. Welcome back to For the Girls. We are so lucky to be joined by another incredible guest. We are here with Bernie Collins today. And most recently, Bernie was the head of race strategy at Aston Martin. And prior to that role, she was a senior strategy engineer at Racing Point, which is now known as Aston Martin, uh, for almost five years and a strategy engineer at Force India. She started her F1 career in the graduate program at McLaren, where she spent six years first as a graduate engineer, a design engineer, and a performance engineer. This past season, she has stepped away from her day-to-day role and is now helping to improve people's understanding of the sport and helping break down barriers, especially for young women in STEM, which we so admire and cannot wait to chat about. But we're so excited to have you here, Bernie. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. Good introduction. So, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. We hopefully we can't do you full justice, I'm sure, but hopefully that <laughs> comes close. Um, so we definitely want to dive into the beginning of your career. But I think first, we would just love to start with your most recent role as head of race strategy at Aston Martin. First of all, what an amazing role. Um, would love to just hear from you what your responsibilities were. What does that role entail? Yeah, so it was a really incredible role to be fit to take part of and to do as part of the team. Um, and I guess you only really appreciate it when you look back in hindsight, which I've, you know, I've been fortunate enough to do now. Um, but yeah, ultimately the responsibility is just to try and get the best result for the team. You know, the team totally operates on, on team points across both drivers. So for sure, each driver is trying to get the best result individually, but you're trying to get the best overall result for the team and hopefully the most points over the year. Um, now in the race that breaks down to really simple things like choosing a pit stop and how you react to certain events but over the whole weekend you're looking at how you can sort of optimise the car's performance, how you can get you know, the best qualifying position or the best race position or the best tyre choice for, for the weekend so there's quite a lot that builds up to the last bit of the race if you <laughs> see what I mean so would you be kind of sitting on the pit wall? How would how did you manage everything in the garage with so many moving parts, so many people trying to make decisions? Yeah, so primarily you would sit on the pit wall during um, you know the sessions, the race weekend. You'd be in you know a truck, an engineer's truck in the paddock. The rest of the time, so outside of the sessions, we had a lot of your meetings. Then you had a lot of support from the factory. So the factory is based in the UK, but it operates in the same time zone as we are wherever we are in the world. So we have a lot of conversations with the rest of the team back there. So generally there's one person at the track and strategy department, which is generally me or another. Um, and then you'll have sort of three to four people on support full time back at the factory. So there's a lot of like conversations that goes on, a lot of meeting that goes on to try and make sure like everyone's working on the same page and you're all sort of doing is getting as much done as you can but without repeating any of the tasks or anything and um, but just trying to bring all the information that you have together and hopefully make the right decisions from the track side point of view it sounds like you have to do a lot of things really fast real time constantly for that <laughs> yeah i think like it's you know everyone thinks of the real hectic like in session stuff and that is sure you know like single lap decisions that you're trying to make really quickly you're trying to decide before the end of the lap if you're going to box or not maybe react to something that's happened quite close to the end of the lap you do a lot of like preparation in advance so a lot of thinking of if there was a safety car now what would i ha- what would i do etc but a lot of maybe what people don't see is at the end of a Friday night or the end of the Saturday night when you've got a little bit more information about your tyres or about the car pace or the end of Saturday when you've got your qualifying positions, that period um, when, you know, the the punters have all gone home and the stands are getting really quiet, that's actually really probably one of our busiest periods because you're trying to get all the information together, do all the analysis from what happened during the day and then formulate a plan for the next day and you're trying to do that all sort of you know as quickly as you can just that everyone gets home and gets some rest so there's lots of like different levels of busyness there's like the panic busyness of the pit wall (laughs) and then there's like sort of more structured analysis busyness of what you're trying to do after that and i know a lot of race weekends like random wrenches can be thrown in and things that you can't predict but how much would you say race strategy depends on like what you've prepared for all the things that you just said and how much ends of it just being like on the fly decisions during the race I think a lot of it, like most of the stuff that is like 
so you have a plan you know like a plan a like this is exactly when we would want to stop if nothing was in our way type thing and you very rarely end up on that plan so it's always like mm-hmm. something that happens an accident a safety car all those things but we spend a lot of time like you suggest you know preparing in advance what's the risk of a safety car what laps are they likely to be what's the risk of it raining or there being an accident or all these things so you've got lots of like alternative plans um, and I described it recently to someone as you know, even from the outside, when you watch a very boring one-stop race where it looks like we've only made one decision, actually we've made <laughs> hundreds of decisions in the background wow. that are mm. never actually used. So every lap we're discussing, what if now? Like, what if there's a safety car? What if we get a puncture? What if we have front-wing damage? So all these these times and all these other laps where from the outside it's like nothing's happening, we're still making, like, loads and loads of decisions all the time just to be ready in case something does happen. So it's really I'd say the preparation is is much more key than the on the spot decisions generally. And in terms of obviously you have to be looking at what everybody's doing, not just your drivers, not just your team, but you have to be looking at all other teams. Do you have a team that's looking at everybody else or a team that's just looking at, you know, Aston Martin and how do you bring that all together? Like what's the balance of looking at yourself versus looking at others? Yeah, so I think I'd say most of the teams in the pit lane have a really similar structure where you've got one person generally on the pit wall making overall decisions. Then back at the factory, you'll have someone looking specifically at your own car. So they'll be looking at one driver or the other and they'll be looking at their lap times and their exact race. And then we have people who are just devoted to competitor analysis. Mm. So um, at the moment, which I think maybe isn't commonly known, is in the pit lane, we get the... um, the pit wall to driver communications for all the other teams so live in the race we can uh-huh. hear the conversations that are going on with the other drivers you obviously don't hear yeah. you know the private conversations happening on the pit wall but you do hear 18 other conversations so we have people that listen to that in the factory as do all the teams and sort of try and pick out the important bits tell us what they've gathered or what they think they're going to do next or think they're close to pitting and stuff so there's a lot of you know, there's a big devotion. I think it's growing the amount that teams are spending just on competitor analysis, looking at like where they're strong, where they're weak, you know, even really like simple things like um, we can now do like GPS overlays. So you can look at another competitor and see that they're saving their energy and therefore you know in a few laps that they're going to spend that energy. So it's become like quite tactical, you know, what you can do. (laughs) That is so cool. And what is your what was your relationship like with the race engineers when you're kind of in this position are you hearing from the factory and then telling them then what to say to the drivers or kind of how does that all come together yeah so generally like i think again most teams line of communication is really similar so you tend to have um a decision being made centrally then go into the race engineer then the race engineer talks to the driver so that's sort of the line of communication generally we try to have like one voice for each sort of aspect so um the people in the factory will speak to me we'll make a decision then i'll speak to the race engineer and that's sort of the flow of it and the way that that normally happens is that the driver only hears one voice so mm-hmm. he only hears from the race he's not hearing like all of this confusion or everything that's going on in the background you need to have a pretty strong relationship with the race engineers in many ways because they need to trust yeah, what you're saying imagine. is going to be, yeah, going to be correct. And um, and a lot of it's just like afterwards, if you do make a mistake or something goes wrong, you go through it and you analyze it and you learn a little bit together and you build a bit of trust with each other. Yeah. And what about that relationship with, with the drivers? Like how much are you working with them before the race, during the race? Um, and I know, you know, you worked with Seb and Lance. So any insights on what it was like working with them would be so cool. Yeah, I think um, you, you spend a lot of time, like, again, mainly Saturday night, Sunday morning. Like, that's the point where it's quite funny. Like, at the start of the weekend, a fr- Thursday or Friday, when they're thinking of their car setup and they're thinking about what happened last week, they're not so interested in what the strategy guy or girl has to say. And then as you get closer to Sunday, <laughs> the conversations with you become, like, more and more apparent. Um, but, you know, Seb, I think everyone knows, is is very, like, into his strategy he's very like 
um, particular about everything. He's very like on top of all of the small details that go into his race weekend. Um, and it was a bit like daunting almost when he joined the team because you're a bit like, oh, how much feedback am I going to get on the strategy mm-hmm. decisions we make or whatever? Um, but yeah, he was really keen on a Saturday night or a Sunday to sit down and go through all the plans or... Um, we do like a lot of like simulating of what we think might go wrong or might go right or what others might do and he'd always have a bit of a oh what if xyz does this or like because his history in f1 is much more than my history in f1 he'd sometimes say things like oh have you looked at the race in whatever year it might be i was like no i haven't looked at that race but i will go and look at that race so wow so examples. remember back to specific races from yeah. like 10 years ago wow that's incredible. yeah so he, he would just say like oh look at this race when we did xyz it's like oh okay um and then lance was always much more like on board with what you were suggesting would just sit and go through the stuff that you were working through with him so you end up with like a very different relationship across the drivers um and just in terms of you know just people are different so they'll want different pieces of information at different times but again it's just about over the time that you've been there building trust with them so that when you do make a decision or you do say this is the plan that you want to do or this is the reason why we think something might work or not work or whatever and um, that gradually over time they learn to go oh, okay well you know she's probably thought through all of the options or um yeah so like there was sometimes they, they thought I was right or wrong or whatever but then you just go through it afterwards and you know if you're wrong you explain why you made that decision at the time or what information you might have they could have given you that would have been different that would have helped that so you start to really build on on how you work together so yeah it was always it was always good fun that is so cool and during a race how much are you guys listening to drivers on the track i i know there were instances last year on other teams of like drivers quote unquote calling their own strategy and things like that yeah. like how much are you listening to drivers and their radios and taking into consideration what they think is right yeah, in the I think moment the biggest the biggest time that that like obviously you take into consideration they as much as we've got loads of data and we love to make decisions as engineers based purely on the data that's often doesn't quite cover everything that's happened so like you know the classic cases when the tires are going off a little bit and you can't quite see it in the lap times yet or you're stuck in traffic so your lap times can't show you how good or bad a state the car is in so you need to rely on the driver to sort of say i think i can go you know four tenths faster five tenths faster and then you need to sort of know your driver to know how realistic that four or five tenths is and actually if you should be thinking one or two tenths um so it really again you know you you take different pieces of information from different drivers in the same way you would anyone that you work with in an office because you 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 know a little bit about them and the biggest one then is sort of the the wet or dry situation so when a track's Mm. getting drier and you think it's time to go for a dry tire you sort of need to rely a lot on the driver's feeling in that instance you can give them information about other drivers for sure and sort of encourage the conversation but definitely you know it's up to them to sort of or to a good degree to decide yeah now it's time for a dry tire and that's the biggest one for me but you know we had a lot of conversation and the the difficult one is when stuff needs to happen really quickly so you need to you're really mm-hmm. close to fitly an entry you need to make a really quick decision it just needs to be a call those are really hard conversations we've not had a chance pre-making a decision to really discuss it but yeah we were quite open at listening to our drivers um i think and you do get some really good feedback like they are um the one sensor in the car if you like that sets you apart from all of the other cars on track so you sort of need to to know that they're correct and take on board what they're saying what would you kind of find to be personally the most challenging for either planning in advance or these on the fly decisions like either the inters or slicks decision or when there's really unexpected safety cars or just general chaos can think of a few races general chaos things got really (laughs) crazy really quickly and there were so many jokes this year of ferrari saying like oh we're on plan e um yeah (laughs) i never got to plan e um (laughs) i never had a plan e written down um, because nobody like the drivers can't remember that far really um but yeah i think it's the stuff where you need to make really quick decisions where it could go either way um often in the wet or dry especially if you're going 
if it's a dry and track things actually happen reasonably slowly it dries lap on lap so it's like a very gradual thing if you get like sudden rainfall then it's quite a quick decision but often it's really clear what you should be doing um sometimes it's the safety cars at the end of the race where you're trying to say oh we might lose some positions you're trying to second guess what everyone else is doing and you're then committing the driver to have to overtake some people and make that strategy work those are the ones that are often the most difficult um and difficult for a number of reasons because it's very close to the end of the race often so it's very you don't have enough time to make up for the decision again as well later on um so there's an element of that but there are always ones where it's really obvious afterwards what you should have done so like (laughs) straight away someone's like oh we're never going to overtake or that tire was always going to be okay or whatever it might be but not information that you had at the time and so i find those ones were probably the most hectic where it's there's a lot of decisions that are really 50 50 um, and you go through them in hindsight and you try and learn and you know improve your um, decision making going forward but yeah th- those are ones where there's always quite strong opinions from, from everyone involved I'd love to talk a little bit about your role and like what it was like being a travelling member of the team I'm sure this year you're going to be really happy or have been happy to not do all of the travelling um, but what was that like for you um, like day in the life of being a travelling team member and constantly being on the road yeah, so I think, like, it's easy to pick up on the negatives of it. Like, you're away from home a lot. It's really tough. The jet lag. Um, there's there's many things that are quite difficult. Like, depending on where you end up in the world, we tended to sort of travel out on the Tuesday or Wednesday pre-race. So you'd be at the track on a Thursday. And then Thursday to Sunday would be at the track. And, like, the Friday and the Saturday nights are generally really late. So the moment we've got, like, a curfew in place where you need to be away from the track for eight or nine hours... But actually, by the time you get back and showered and get some sleep, it's not, you know, it's like sort of more like six hours sleep type thing, depending again on where you are. And then on Sunday or Monday, we travel back to the UK and we kick off our analysis. So it's pretty relentless in terms of the days that you're working um, because you're starting. Yeah, you're starting like the Monday or Tuesday before a race and then you're finishing like the Wednesday or Thursday after a race. So there's quite a lot of days in a row and if you do like the back-to-back races where you go straight to the next track it's like pretty relentless and we did a few where it was you know three races in a row across several time zones and just by like Saturday or Sunday of the last race you're like I just I just need 10 (laughs) minutes on my own because you sort of end up in this like travel and pack that's your family so you spend more time with these people than you spend at home and I was really fortunate and the, the the guys that I worked with at Aston Martin I got on really well with. So, you know, they were a really good community. But it just gets to a point where you're like, I just need five minutes. Like, just, I need my lunch alone. Just nobody <laughs> annoy me. I'm alone. They need to recharge my battery. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, that makes total sense. Maybe on like a more positive or fun note do you have a particular favorite moment or race with the team over the past couple years that you remember whether that was like a specific call or just like a race in general or also just favorite tracks or circuits yeah just kind of your some of your favorites while you were with the team yeah I think um like you know to to be positive on on the travel and stuff I love the travel and I love going and seeing like different places in the world different communities get we often get a real feel for the country it was very fortunate you know pre-covid to stay out in a few holidays and really get to like sort of embrace the traveling life which was good um and i really i wouldn't i wouldn't change that um best moments you know it's really there's a lot of races where you didn't necessarily have a fantastic result and um, there's one in brazil that springs to mind where it was a wet race um, and we we actually finished fourth, which is a good result for us. But we just missed out on the podium. But it was a race where people were really disappointed we lost the podium. But actually, I felt like we made every decision correctly. So from a strategy point of view, I felt like actually that was a really good race. Um, and then you get other races where you feel like you made some really bad decisions, but actually the result's pretty good. I guess the standout moment is we only had one win in my time with the team. Um, and that was with Checo in 2020 in, in Bahrain and that was really you know it felt like 
we had just achieved something that people didn't think was possible. Now, there was mistakes from others, but we were still there to pick it up and we made the right decisions. Um, So that was like a really, especially because it was a time where Chaka was leaving as well. It was a really lovely moment for the team to have felt that win together, which, you know, we'd had a few podiums throughout the years and it felt like a real step up. Um, so that was, that was brilliant. That was like sort of a highlight, I would say. That was just an insane race. I think that's one of the highlights of his career for sure. It's just incredible. Yeah. What was it like working with him? Were you surprised by the move to Red Bull? Um, I wasn't surprised necessarily because I think with us, he was really underrated um, because he was working for Force India. He was always scoring the most points in the team, but... I think the people he was racing against were a bit underrated and therefore he was underrated for beating them. So I'm glad that, you know, at that stage, okay, you're not involved in all the conversation that obviously he's involved in, so maybe it wasn't as at risk as it seemed to us. But it felt like he came really close to not having a drive and he's, you know, a really lovely guy um, and, and works hard. So it was really lovely to get that win and then go on to see him get the red ball seat. And then since that, go on to have you know, performed really well in that seat yeah. where others have not. Um, so, yeah, I feel really happy that, um, yeah, he's had that opportunity. It's really good to see, I think. We've talked a lot about the the number two seat at Red Bull and what it takes to shine in that role. He's definitely, he's definitely killing it. We all need a little extra health booth sometimes, and Fleur Marche makes it easy for us to supercharge our wellness. Their botanical wellness patches have been such a fun addition to our routine. We just stick them on wherever we want. They have them for sleep, relaxation, focus, and other things. And the patch delivers ingredients to your body in a subtle but effective way, and the results last up to 12 hours. Fleur Marche also has botanical gummies and their new organic nutritional powder, Green Machine. They only use the best ingredients and are tested for potency, contaminants, and heavy metals before and after production. And one of our favorite things, we also love that the company is founded and inspired by women with the mission of helping us feel 100% every single day so that we can have full energy and crush it every day. Find your new wellness essentials at fleurmarche.com and get a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your first order site-wide with promo code for the girls at checkout. Orders over $50 also get free shipping. Go to fleurmarche, F-L-E-U-R-M-A-R-C-H-E.com. Use code for the girls for 20% off your first order. Okay, friends, it's festival and concert season, and you know it's all about the boots this year. That's why you need to make Tacova's your number one place for festival style this spring. And don't forget to shop there. Seasonal and limited edition offerings, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. We love Tacova's. They have a first wear comfort, which basically means there's no break in period. It's the best thing ever. So stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, and shop new styles. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personal. Personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's really no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, though, just visit tecovas.com, T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and they ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Women's health is so important, and balanced hormones are key for that. We've been loving Hormone Harmony from Happy Mammoth, who's committed to making women's lives easier. Hormone Harmony contains adaptogens, science-backed herbal extracts that help the body adapt to stressors like hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. We love it because it helps us maintain optimal hormone levels and supports our mood and general well-being. There is a reason that one bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. For a limited time, you can get 15% off on your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use code F1Rthegirls at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code F1Rthegirls for 15% off today. Um, I thought it would be fun now. Maybe we talk a little bit about, we'll go back in time and talk about your start in this wonderful world of F1. So you're from Northern Ireland. Okay. Tell us yeah. about your upbringing, your family. Did you guys grow up watching F1? How did you How did you get into it and where you are? Yeah, it's a really, um, like we grew up, I grew up when F1 was on the TV, like dad would have watched it at home and stuff. But it was something that, um, at least when I was younger, it wasn't really highlighted that you could work in it. 
which sounds a bit silly, but you know, there's lots of you know videos of the drivers or imagery of the divers or interviews of the drivers, but you didn't really think about the people in the pet lane or the people working in the factories even or any of that. So I hadn't really imagined ever working in, in motorsport. It wasn't something, like a lot of people, I get contacted by a lot of people who really want to work on F1. That's all they want to do. <laughs> and I wasn't one of those people. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I was always like quite curious as to how things worked or taking things apart or um so it was always quite mechanically minded which maybe wasn't obvious to others or maybe it was but at least it wasn't obvious to me until I got down the path of starting mechanical engineering and um, but looking back on it now like I was forever taking things apart to see how they worked and mm-hmm. um, so it was probably always obvious that I was going to be an engineer it just didn't took a long time to get there. <laughs> And so you went to get a master's in mechanical engineering from Queen's University, Belfast. Um, yeah. Yeah. What was that program like? And then how did you decide, I guess, from there to launch into F1? Yeah. So um, I did engineering because I didn't know what to do. And I really enjoyed I math and physics. So I, yeah, I, know, I was just like... I literally like took the university prospectus and said I've been doing maths and physics for A-levels what sort of degrees can I do and just like stroked out the stuff that I could do and tried to figure (laughs) it out Um, and then that had like the most broadest range of careers at the end of it so I thought okay well that's fine I can just kick the decision down the road another little bit um, but I really enjoyed my engineering and then in my I did a program called Formula Student so it's like organized by the Mickey and we build a little single-seater race car and that's actually the first time that I thought even about automotive as a career um, because in Belfast a lot of people go into the aerospace industry or the shipbuilding industry that type those types of industries um, so it was the first time I'd really thought about automotive racing that sort of thing um, and I, yeah, I enjoyed it just because it's got such a variety. So you use a bit of design work, a bit of build work, a bit of like looking at the manufacturer. So that was really great. And at the end of coming towards the end of my degree, um, McLaren advertised a graduate scheme. And I was very much, um, I'd sort of ruled myself out just because I thought, oh, it's going to be such limited numbers. They were looking for two people. So I'd sort of decided not to go for it. And one of my lectures encouraged us to apply and said you need you know everyone needs to apply type thing and I applied and I got through the interview processes and at each stage it was just like oh let's see how it goes and Mm -hmm. um, you get to the final interview which you go to McLaren and you think well at least I get to see around McLaren if nothing else I've got to see around McLaren so that's (laughs) you know tick box Um, so it was really great because I think a lot of people have the attitude that they're maybe not good enough or it's not worth their while applying and actually that was my first real insight to you know you need to put yourself forward and you need to go for these opportunities that exist so I joined you know I was really lucky to join that McLaren scheme there was two of us taken on that year purely into F1 so we did a one-year graduate scheme in F1 um, in loads of different departments which you know graduate schemes are really great for that it really built my confidence to say how the whole team worked together, how all the departments worked together, and um, you get to meet loads of people, and you know, it's, just, it's really nice. And yeah, then I ended up working for them as a designer, which um, again was a great opportunity to sort of sit in the design office and work through it. So it sounds like maybe you didn't fully envision yourself at McLaren until you were very close to actually being there. When you got there, yeah. was there something super surprising about either the team or just the world of F1 that you weren't expecting? I think um, one thing that surprised me when I got there is they, they've obviously got this massive design office with, you know, really super intelligent guys and girls in there that are have been working for a long time. You know, some of them have been working their whole lives in F1 with loads of experience. And I think what surprised me is the time that they were prepared to devote to helping me. So there was lots of guys that were clearly very busy that would sit down and explain things to me or go through design stuff with me or it felt like everyone had time and everyone was um, yeah, willing to help me on my journey rather than just their own little busyness. So it was a real team atmosphere compared to an office where everyone's trying to get their bit done as quickly as possible and get home. Everyone was trying to work together and knew that you know, making me a stronger engineer would ultimately help the office. So I think that sense of community I wasn't expecting I was expecting it to be a bit more 
cutthroat than that. And actually, it was really nice environment to step into. That's so nice to hear. (laughs) And when you were um, transitioning to working in performance engineering, what was that like? How was kind of taking that step up? What drivers did you work with? Yeah, so that was really like when I got to the F1 stuff, I ended up with McLaren doing gearbox design. And through that time, I sort of, they they had a GT program. So they had a, a road car basically that they were racing in and wanted some help with. So I volunteered for that. I got some trackside experience. And when I was at the track, I thought, actually, I really enjoy this aspect of it. I sort of want to do the racing, but I want to be at the track. So I ended up volunteering for the F1 team, like helping out in their mission control and, and doing variety of little things but all sort of promoted me towards the performance engineering um, position. So it was quite a step away from Gearbox design. But again, there was a lot of support there to try and help me learn what I needed to do for the performance bit and like make the move across. And then I was given the opportunity, you know, one of the guys went on paternity leave and I stepped into his role for two races and it was really great, like stepping stone and a chance to do it. So I did the 2014 season with Jensen Button um, wow. So I did that whole year there with That's them. Amazing. Yeah, so that is it was so good, cool. Really. And again, like that was really lovely because you know he knew I was learning and it was my first year doing it. Um, but again, really supportive, you know, and trying to explain. You know, he had a lot of experience at that stage. Um, still does. I don't know why I said it at that stage, but um, <laughs> he just yeah, he was really like helpful and trying to teach me what he needed to get again you know that sort of strength in trying to strengthen the whole team so yeah it was a really brilliant experience to do the full season racing with those guys um and yeah lovely to work with it was good yeah he's he's one of my favorite ex-drivers um around in the sport I think he's 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 crushing it these days yeah (laughs) he is i expect no less um that's amazing okay so then you were a performance engineer and then how did you make the jump to strategy so what was that step yeah so it was really like i feel like a lot of my career moves haven't been really planned out and i've just sort of like (laughs) happened which you know everyone asks about your five-year plan but i don't think you necessarily need to have one of those um so i'm yeah i moved to Force India as it was then and I moved and actually the role that I moved to was like half performance half strategy Mm. Um, and as I got there the guy that was doing strategy left so as I arrived they were like well actually now it's just going to be pretty much all strategy I was like well I've not done strategy before but okay (laughs) Um, costing you you right in (laughs) yeah exactly it was like but I think it was more like out of need than anything you know they recruited me to help out that role so it was a bit like I think I had I had like two events where the strategy guy was still there they had another strategist as well so there was two events where the person I was replacing was still there and then he left and I was like oh my god like this is mental <laughs> but I think because it's a small team they like it was out of need you know and I again I had loads of support from the people around me and you know the full-time strategist you know we, the two of us worked really well together um, but it's an opportunity you wouldn't be given in a bigger team because it's just crazy um, but yeah it was a really good step for me I think and it was like because I'd seen some of it before at McLaren and you've got like a little bit of experience and you build up some race knowledge um, at least in hindsight I feel like it was okay but maybe at the time it was terrible um, so yeah it was that just became me as a strategist then when I started when I moved to Force India and then I've only done strategy since then so yeah I've enjoyed it and you've definitely learnt a lot about a very different field to to what I was necessarily doing before so yeah it's been it's been cool. And working for going from McLaren to then transitioning to Racing Point and also kind of Racing Point undergoing changes in leadership and transitioning to Aston Martin did you notice kind of any big differences between the teams or kind of what was the the dynamic like during all of that? Yeah, so like um, McLaren at that stage was a much bigger team than Force India. So you sort of rocked up at a very different factory and it was so much smaller. You're sort of looking around the design office going, where is everybody else? Like, (laughs) uh, um, and I just remember being blown away by how few people there were in the design office versus McLaren. And you sort of, you then start to think, well, we 
just being really inefficient or you know why were we why is there so few of of them um so that was interesting as well as that it was like in the race engineering department that i was then part of with the strategy team you you got so few people it really prioritized what you worked on you had to work on really important things and be really flexible with what you were prioritizing and what you were working on now but actually as a move it was really great for learning because there wasn't somebody for each job it was like just pick up the next most important job and get on with it and so you were given loads of opportunities and I worked on a load of different roles that I wouldn't have had it in a bigger team so yeah it was quite nice and then I guess gradually over time Force India have merged through the different names to you know now be quite a big team so it's probably ended much closer to what the McLaren days were like um but much like gradually over time so I've sort of not realized the transition so much yeah that makes sense and I'm curious your thoughts on Aston Martin today and in the future I know there's a lot of news and people talking about how much the strolls in Aston Martin is investing in an amazing future um are you optimistic about that does that and Alonso joining the team too yeah I think well so I'm really interested to see how Alonso does um you yeah, and me both because you know, <laughs> yeah. I think um you know everyone really rates him as a good driver I've, I've never worked with him but you know, just to see how fast the car is out of the box, how well he gets on with the team. You know, I, th- I think he'll fit in with the team. It's just be interested to see the speed, basically. Um, in terms of like the going forward, Aston Martin, from where we were, I, I keep saying we still, but you know, from where they were, I think the investment's been huge and the management of it so far is going reasonably okay like it's really difficult to take on like a whole new factory and a lot of new people and make them all work together but so far i think that's gone okay and um the team before were were really good and worked really hard and got really good results from the car that they had so if we can just make this transition phase into the new factory and the new wind tunnel then it should be a really strong team um, there's obviously difficulties in the team growing so much and all of these things but yeah I am quite hopeful you know that it's yeah. felt sad in a way to have gone through the period where we didn't have a particularly nice factory like showy factory or you know we didn't have you know an amazing office or whatever and you leave and this new factory is being <laughs> built and you know everything's going to be shiny and new and there's going to be a nice new canteen and a nice new gym and stuff and you're like why am I leaving now you know I've done all the hard bit um so I think that the new yeah the new factory and stuff would be really powerful for the team and you know the the Alonso and Lance dynamic will be interesting to see going forward yeah. as well and hopefully that's all okay um but yeah I feel like I was treated really well there so I'm, I'm hopeful for the team and the guys that are still there that it all works out okay yeah and even if you don't get the shiny canteen you were there for the come up and you helped build yeah. the foundation for the future which it's so legit. is so great legit. Yeah, what is the knowing the strolls do you have any predictions on kind of what the dynamic with Alonzo will be or how is kind of the partnership between um, Lance and Vettel was that ever hard to manage I don't think it was hard to manage because they're both at very different stages of their career. So, you know, Lance is just trying to absorb as much information as he can. And both with, you know, Sebastian and now Alonso, um, he'll have such... I, I, I have in my head that they're going to be quite different characters like Sebastian and Alonso. But um, I so he's got loads of different opportunities to learn like a very different technique or a very different Mm -hmm. style with his engineers or whatever it might be so yeah I think at the minute like Lance is just absorbing all of that information and trying to learn as much as he can so I don't think there'd be any friction between them and apart from you know one year that we had um, Checo and Esteban generally the team and the driver dynamics have been really good so I've not had to live through too much of you know the infighting um so yeah I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that all will be good and, and you know a lot um Lance will just learn loads yeah uh, sort of on a similar topic with Vettel 
leaving and retiring. I know I think you left before he officially retired, but his radio message to you, I think it was the Hungarian Grand Prix was so sweet at the end of the race. What was it like being a part of the team with him sort of on his way out and working with with him? I know you spoke a little bit about it earlier, but in the context of retirement. um... And what was it like getting a getting a radio shout out by a, <laughs> yeah. a for a start? But like, um, I think that was because I've been giving him so much abuse. So I was leaving the Hungary Grand Prix, and I I had six months' notice. So it was known for six months that I was leaving at that race. And then at that race, he announced his retirement. So suddenly, all the focus oh. is back on him again. So I was giving him a lot of abuse for stealing my thunder, <laughs> which I think is why the radio message came. But yeah, it was interesting to see. Um, like he'd obviously not decided until quite late, I think, um, that he was going to leave. He um, obviously has his own reasons for doing so. I totally get that. But he was still really devoted to what he does, and I think that's a bit un- unusual in other sports or you know whatever. Even stuff like in Hungary, I was still on the pit wall. I was still trying hard to get the best result for the team, even though I knew I wouldn't be there the next week or I wouldn't have to justify my decisions. And it's a bit like that with Seb. You know, he was still re- working really hard. He was still suggesting new ideas. He was still like suggesting different bits of analysis we could do. So. Um, I think those guys are, yeah, still still pushing really hard, even though they have decided. Like, I sort of hope that, if it's, for example, with me, and I can't really compare it, obviously, it's totally different, like Sebastian even, but in my last six months doing my role, I enjoyed it so much because I knew that that, or, you know, I, you think that's going to be your last six months. So you sort of say, well, I'm going to go to every race. I'm going to try and enjoy it as much as I can. I'm going to try and take as many pictures as I can. I'm going to take the time to stop in the pit lane and speak to someone that I'd normally rush past because I'm busy or whatever so Mm -hmm. you always end up or I always felt like I ended up really busy like running around or getting to the next meeting or whatever it might be and not really taking time to enjoy it like not taking a picture of the podium or whatever it might be so I sort of hope that you know similarly for um, Sebastian in his last six months he went okay I'm going to really enjoy every session every qualifying every race you know the build up whatever it might be the people um and I'm sure you'll see him back in the paddock again um, for, you know, whatever whatever he ends up doing. But, um, yeah, I, I hope he enjoyed it. I hope he sort of enjoyed the last six months and sort of it makes you remember that it is really special to work in the paddock because you can mm-hmm. get, like, you, you just, everyone, everyone you work with, everyone you know works in the paddock, like you're surrounded by the paddock all the time, so you get, like, numb to it. And then it's only when you realise, actually, people would die to be in the paddock like people love the idea of people in the paddock people would give so much <laughs> to be there and you know my last race I don't normally go to the grid because I'm normally on the pit wall looking at the weather conditions stuff and then my last race I got to go to the grid and I was like you know so mm. few people have been to the grid and walked on the grid and experienced it so I think it's only when you re- when you're leaving which sounds stupid it's only really when you're exiting that you think about all those things um, so yeah it's been nice to be fit to enjoy it yeah, well, I'm so glad you at least got that time to savor it, <laughs> and hopefully Sebastian did too. Yeah, and hopefully. we definitely want to get into kind of what you've been doing since, but we have one last question before that. I'd love to know what you think about the cost cap and how that is changing or has already changed kind of dynamics. We talked about Aston Martin having an awesome new facility and how some teams were kind of disadvantaged compared to other teams, and do you think – it actually is helping level out the playing field a bit or since so many categories of spending are excluded, is it just not making that much difference? Yeah, I think, so it's not something I spend ages going through all the regulations for. I sort of tried to stay away from it as much as possible because it wasn't my job. But I think, unfortunately, the cost caps really come into its own at the point where we've had a really big regulation change. So right. whether it levels the playing field or not, I don't think we're going to see straight away because the big regulation changes spread the playing field straight away again because naturally the top teams have had more time to devote to their next year's car or whatever so i think it's going to take a few years to say i think um leveling the playing field is important um but i'm not sure that the cost cap's the right way to do it i dislike the cost cap for a number of reasons one i i don't like the idea that you know like the red bull situation 12 months later we're finding out that someone's breached cost cap rules we shouldn't be deciding the championship yeah exactly like 12 months later we should know yes or no 
whatever's happened. Now, I think... I know, I was like, I'm not an accountant, but I feel like someone should have figured this out by now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, if your bank was overdrawn, you'd probably have figured out by 12 months' time. Um, (laughs) But it is because it's a really complex set of rules, and I think, you know, everyone's admitted that they're going to try and do a better job of that going forward. So I think that's... um, Yeah, that, that aspect I just like. It also sort of, you know, if we think of again my own situation but my reason for leaving is how hectic the seasons has become you know 23 24 races triple headers it really takes a toll and I got to the point where I just thought this isn't like as much as I love it it isn't life you know I'm ending the season really tired or whatever and I think that teams are going to have to get to a point where they job share to some account so if two people doing a role or whatever it might be and unfortunately the cost cap flies in the face of that so you can't really employ two people to do a role or whatever it might be now you could say okay well maybe they don't buy a new front wing and they have two of you but the teams are never going to go for that trade off so I think they need to come up with some sort of situation that still allows for the team to be looked after and and I'm not saying teams aren't necessarily harming their staff but I think if we're going to add more and more races going forward then there needs to be some sort of flexibility there so and yeah it seems like so many things are not included in it um that it's really questionable um anyway but yeah I, I i get what they're trying to do and i don't have a better solution you know at one stage we had a resource restriction where headcount was restricted um but then you're still getting better teams pay, you know paying the big money whatever so yeah i don't have a solution at the minute that's different to what we've got but i'm not really sure that what we've got is ideal either i'm so interested interested to see what will happen and this is kind of a nice segue to our next topic too because as f1 has gotten so big so many interesting things are coming up like sustainability women in the sport like all these different things that maybe just weren't talked about before so the, the point about sustainability is so true and like i'm curious to see how they can start to like we're all human you're all human to figure out how it yeah. works um but tell us about your switch so what have you what have you been up to now and advocating for the sport we know you've been really involved in women in stem which is a huge passion of ours too so we'd love to hear more about it yeah so i've sort of well i've just taken a bit of time just to relax a little bit and not so much but um i sort of end up getting involved with things like f1 directly so um i did a series with film last year and basically going through some races and explaining the strategy and trying to break down um what's sometimes reasonably confusing like the midfield races i think are reasonably confusing for those that just watch along on tv Mm -hmm. Um, and you get two breeds really of of people you get um, the people who are watching because they've watched it on Drive to Survive and are just getting into the sport and very new to it. Um, so you've got this, and then you've got the people who want all of the data, like all of the lap times, all of the graphs. So it's really difficult, I think, to deal with both sets of people just from one set of TV coverage. Um, so some of it's trying to explain the strategy better to those people, try and go through what the strategists are thinking. And I think there's been more and more focus over the years on on the race strategy or the pit wall compared to just the drivers so that's really interesting um, I've learned it's it's a bit weird but when you're at the track or um, working in a team you don't really think about how the coverage is formed or how right. all the people are working together or how like the people at the track are working with the people in London to get the video recording out quite quickly and all of this so I feel like I've learned a lot about like what's going on in or around the paddock that I've probably just ignored before um, so that's been cool um, and then I've been doing some work you know like I did some Sky Any Driven Monday things again trying to help a little bit bring an engineering voice really to what's happened over race weekend yeah, which is so huge. Can you explain for people who might not, a lot of our listeners are American, might not know kind of the oh. big deal of Sky Sports, Any Driven Monday, because congrats, that's really amazing. Yeah, so basically it's like um, Sky Sports in the UK, they show all of the coverage in the UK. Um, so they do like post-race on a Monday, a sort of analysis of the key talking points, for want of a better word. So I just sort of got involved and tried to explain, you know, 
a bit like you guys are asking me like what my opinion was or what I thought happened and um, like there was a really interesting one with the Verstappen fuel issue in qualifying which was Singapore I mm. think so I sort of went through you know from my past experience what I think happened there so that's been really interesting because you now post-race can like listen to what's happened during the race and listen to the TV and then it's easy. I'm now one of the person going oh that's not what I would have done but it's really <laughs> easy post-race to say what you would have done so that's been interesting and then yeah we've been doing loads of you know like this sort of thing like the podcast stuff or um some interviews some working with some schools i'm actually going back to um my secondary school next week and um, i'm going Aww. to talk to some of the students there about engineering and um, because i think when when i was younger that's there great. wasn't a lot of focus like i went to an all-girls school there wasn't loads of focus on on doing engineering or what you could do afterwards so we're doing yeah i'm doing some some sort of fun things like that which I think I'd be quite nervous standing in front of a room of you know 16 <laughs> year olds trying to that were once me um so yeah that that'll be that'll be fun hopefully I don't get too many difficult questions um so yeah there's, there's loads of like sort of interesting little bits going on like that so incredible we, we always like to ask people sort of what advice you would have for anyone thinking about entering the sport thinking about becoming a mega fan whatever it is like what advice would you have people who are maybe intimidated by it yeah i think um the best advice that i was given and i've given it to others is sort of what i explained at the start like the my life would be so different if i just hadn't applied for that mclaren rule um so you just need to go for the opportunities you need to apply for things put yourself out there take a bit of a risk and if you don't get the job or the interview or whatever it is, you need to ask why, like what skills could be different, what could you learn different, what experience you would have. Um, and then I think when we're all younger, especially at the start of career, we end up working really hard to get different experience. Like I did loads of extra weekends at the track to get the trackside experience or just sort of move my job role when the opportunity came up. So it's just about like really putting yourself out there. Like there's loads of junior teams or racetracks or carton or whatever that want people to help out like just go along and make cups of tea if that's what it needs to be but like to get yourself experience to get yourself out there get yourself involved with the team um so it's just about trying to take opportunities when they come um, and and just look for them where you can but that is such good advice thank you thank you so much it has been so amazing talking to you we really admired you and it was um just so amazing to have you we really appreciate it no problem. Thank you so much for having me.